Fearless Leaders. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen, and together with fellow writer Malcolm Triggs, I'd like to invite you to join us on a guided tour of some of the bizarre characters who lead the 195 countries that make up planet Earth. If you're looking for a barometer as to how civilised or uncivilised the world is, it strikes us that taking stock of the Prime Ministers and Presidents of our nations is a pretty good way of doing it. But it's also quite troubling, because, to be frank, and with a few exceptions, they're a pretty rum bunch. So in each episode, we'll be looking at one particular leader and revealing what we've found out about them through our diligent desk research. But because we're not experts on any of the countries of the world apart from the one that we live in, which is the UK, we will also be speaking to someone in each episode who can give us a more informed opinion on the nation and the leader in question. We hope you find it interesting and, in a perhaps slightly bizarre way, entertaining too. (coughs) The first glorious leader we are going to explore is very much an old-school dictator with the usual trappings of military uniforms, rigged elections, human rights abuses and a bushy moustache. His opponents refer to him as the monster cockroach and, as we will find out later on, the old Russian fable from which the nickname comes may yet hold the key to his demise. The cockroach's rule remains unchallenged until a laughing kangaroo points out that the cockroach is in fact no giant but merely a cockroach. So, Malcolm, where are we going? We're heading off to uh, some pretty fertile territory, I'd say, for this first episode, specifically the country now known as Europe's last dictatorship. Uh, And that's really down to one man. The country's first and only president since its um, founding or its, its sort of sovereignty after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. This is Belarus and its leader, Alexander Lukashenko. Um, a pretty unsavory type by all accounts, as I'm sure we're about to discover. We certainly are. I'm going to reveal what I've discovered about the fellow in a minute. Then you're going to talk about Belarus itself, aren't you? And uh, as we get increasingly more serious after a bit of joshing around, we're going to hear from a Belarusian guest and allow our glorious leader to speak for himself in his own words. Now, incidentally, the music that you just heard a little burst of in the background there was the the Belarus National Anthem. And we want to stress that any jokes we make or attempt to make in this uh, episode are firmly aimed at the version of Belarus that Lukashenko shaped, rather than the Belarusian people themselves. Yeah, Alexander Lukashenko. Malcolm, I thought I would try and start by thinking of something nice to say about this character, but it's slim pickings, it has to be said. Um, but I've been looking at a photograph of him earlier on today, of him cuddling his dog. He's got a lovely little dog called <laughs> Umka. I think I, I, we must also apologise at this stage. We will be pronouncing various Belarusian names during the course of this episode. Uh, so if any Belarusians are listening, apologies for awful pronunciation on that front. But yeah, he's got a dog. It's a type of dog called a Spitz, which is very fluffy and cute looking. And apparently he now takes this dog around uh, Belarus with him on his on his travels. He's his main companion. Mm. So that might curry a bit of favour with uh, any dog lovers listening. <laughs> he also plays a type of accordion, which I think sort of chimes with this slightly sort of rustic folksy image he, he likes 
yeah. to project, which I think you're going to talk about later on, Malcolm. Um, and he likes to play ice hockey with his sons. <laughs> nice to do stuff with the family, isn't it? Now, talking, <laughs> talking of family, he met his wife, Galena, at high school, and it was love at first sight, Ooh. by all accounts. And he first saw her when she was on stage performing as Snow White. <laughs> um, but although they're technically still married, but they've been estranged for two decades, uh, and he's got two sons with her, two so- uh, sorry, one son with a, another partner at some point, a slightly mysterious mm-hmm. person. And it struck me as a bit like um, Putin, very similar sort of approach. They lead yeah. quite estranged from their wives, lead fairly solitary lives in many respects, um, but have... Yeah, seem to have shadowy dalliances with with women in the background. <laughs> Before we get on to the more serious stuff, we've got to mention the hats, the silly hats. He likes <laughs> a big old military hat, doesn't he? <laughs> Making himself look really tough and important. And the moustache, which is a kind of identikit dictator's moustache. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you if you Google these, these things, as I've been doing uh, as well, um, it, it's kind of almost exactly halfway between Hitler and um starling in terms of the, oh. of the moustache <laughs> yeah. um very similar to begbie the hard man scottish hard man that appeared in the film train spotting <laughs> yes um so to get onto the kind of nitty-gritty he was born in 1954 brought up by a single mother and apparently actually had a really hard time uh about this uh, amongst his, his school friends and maybe that shaped his personality in a mm-hmm. slightly negative aspect who knows he graduated from a pedological institute, which sounds a bit grim, yeah. uh, and then the, the Belarusian Agricultural Academy, which I like to think that he could have been spotted in the student union there with his accordion. <laughs> he served in the in the army uh, quite a few years, and then he ended up managing collective farms. So during this time, he started cultivating his career in politics. And ironically, given the, the corrupt uh, state of his, his his reign since, he was a passionate uh, opponent of corruption. That's how he kind of developed oh, really? <laughs> politics. Yeah, he was actually, um, he was chairman of the Belarusian Parliament's Anti-Corruption Committee. <laughs> oh, the irony. <laughs> I wonder if that committee is still standing. And well, so who knows? <laughs> it seems to have fallen a bit silent. Uh, he, he was then well-placed uh, to stand for president. So as, as you were saying earlier, you know, the, the Soviet Union sort of fell apart. Belarus became independent. He stood uh, as president on a kind of right-wing populist ticket uh, and won. And, um, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of all the elections. I would imagine that, that was probably the only democratic election that he's fairly won. They've been pretty much rigged ever since then. Uh, I was looking here, actually, by the time of his third election in 2006, he was warning anyone attending opposition protests that they would have their necks wrung like a duck. Which is charming. And again, it's a sort of agricultural illusions there, isn't well, it? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not mind like encouraging yeah. a bit of, you know, healthy competition, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Poor old Mallard. As you say, Europe's last dictator, but he's got a rather, um, well, a nickname which I'm sure he doesn't uh, relish, which is the monster cockroach or the great cockroach, depending on how it's translated. Malcolm's actually got a really uh, fascinating insight into this that he's going to uh, <laughs> tell us about later on. Uh, so opponents of the regime uh, dealt with, have been dealt with increasingly brutally over the years. Uh, he, he refers to them as opposition scum. Um, they're jailed, they're tortured, they sometimes just disappear. Press obviously toes a, a firm government line. 
Uh, and last year, audio recordings emerged of the Belarusian Secret Service planning to murder dissidents abroad. Uh, you may also remember that last year, Belarus forced a Ryanair flight that was flying from Greece to Lithuania to land at Belarus. They, they sourced, yeah. it was a kind of hoax, bomb hoax. And they did that because they wanted to arrest one of the passengers who was a 26-year-old critic of Lukashenko called Roman Protasevich, and they arrested his, his Russian girlfriend too. They appeared on uh, TV making confessions under pretty pretty much under duress, and they remain incarcerated under Belarusian uh, detention. Now, and I believe that was, was that not at the direction of, of Mr. Lukashenko himself? So the very top of, of, of the country here calling that kind of shot really, really makes, you know, our own, our own leader look like a, look like a saint in many ways. Doesn't it? <laughs> It, 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 I mean, I think it, the thing in these countries is that presumably none of these big decisions could ever take place without being not only approved by the mm. by the dictator, but uh, you know, mm. prompted by him in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, just looking at all the stuff in the press today about Boris and the the Boozegate stuff, you know, mm-hmm. it's really shabby. But I mean, when you compare it to what it some, some people in the world are going through, yeah. um, uh, now the. The in in 2020, and we have our guest from Belarus is going to be talking about this later on. Really interesting thoughts on it. There, it seemed there was a kind of surge of opposition to Lukashenko, an increasing realization across the country that everything was you know being rigged and that he was he was bad for for Belarus. And so there were a number of protests following the presidential election that year, um, and he cracked down on it very heavily. And after that, uh, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights declared that it had received 450 reports of torture and ill treatment of people who were arrested during those protests. Now, this included the sexual abuse of women and children with rubber batons, the rape of men and women, and the forced twisting of male genitalia as a, as a form of torture. So uh, mm. pretty horrible. Um the, there's a there's a guy in uh, he's a kind of academic social uh, sociologist guy called Andrei Vardamatsky, who has bravely been carrying out um, opinion polls in Belarus for, for many years. He describes uh, Belarus as a country of ashfelted anger, particularly now that there is actually unusually for a dictatorship. Um, he's Lukashenko's kind of lost, as they say, he's, he's lost control of the narrative. <laughs> yeah. Everyone goes on about it. Um, and, and actually, the vast majority of Belarusians don't support him. They're not hoodwinked mm. anymore by by what he's telling them. According to Vardamatsky, only 18.5% of Belarusians support him now, and, and two-thirds of the country are opposed to Belarus supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I would take those figures, obviously, with a pinch of salt because he is an opponent of the regime. But um, I think our guest later on is going to confirm that, that he is not a popular dictator. Not by any call. And there was something that I had read about that election as well. Um, apparently, within minutes of, of polls closing, and this is in the, the 2020 election, the government had announced that Lukashenko had won just about 80% of, of the vote 
of what was a preposterously high figure of a 90% turnout. Um, and on the back of it, as you say, people were arrested, um, including opposition candidates um, and governments elsewhere, including the US and the UK, very quickly imposed sanctions, which still exist today. Yeah, maybe they're just jealous because, you know, 90% participation rate for an election is pretty impressive. You know, It's not bad, is it? <laughs> so, Malcolm, uh, how about kind of lightening the mood a little and telling us, Give us a bit of context around the, the country over which this this man presides. Sure. Well, well, I thought we'd just very briefly touch on his sort of um, bucolic roots, if you like, and then we'll we'll jump over to the country. But as you mentioned, uh, the man himself, he's he, he, a collective farmer, he comes from this this sort of rural background, as he said, a, a kind of gruff, folksy man by all accounts. Um, uh, something that, that really jumped out to me when I was doing my research here was on the um, official government website. And there were just a few lines on the website that he could have written himself. I'm sure he did. Um, it, 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 they, they tell you, I think, everything you really need to know about the man um, in terms of his outlook. Um, apparently, he's a recognised authority for fellow presidents, so really somebody that other presidents around the world should and indeed do look up to. Um, he apparently helped his mother on the homestead where he learned his most important traits of diligence and responsibility. So really, you know, that, that rounded individual that everyone looks up to. Um, and then my favourite, he has always been a leader. This quality was noticed by his classmates and teachers alike. I mean, it really it really stinks of, of, of the classroom loner, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's really got an axe to grind with somebody somewhere. Um, but no, as, as you say, I, I think in terms of lightening the mood, let's 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 maybe look at, at Belarus and, and and you know the country and maybe a little bit of its culture as well. Um, in my mind, Belarus it, it's a country of, of complete contradictions. Um, I've never been there, so I'm, I'm you know certainly not qualified to pass judgment on the place. Um, but from what I understand, it's it's it's, it's a country of contradictions. It's a lot of people would say a very beautiful country, and I'm sure that is the case, um, although uh, the way it's presented, um, certainly in, in terms of Western media, what we would see on, on TV and, and even if you just look at you know Google images of the place, it seems to be a desperately depressing place. Certainly it's more sort of um, you know built up areas, uh, a Soviet Milton Keynes, as I read um, <laughs> online somewhere. Um, it's totally export oriented um, with a real focus on, on sort of metal works, metal industry. Um, and it's especially renowned for the manufacturing of hammers and manhole covers. So it's, it's, it's not exactly Silicon Valley. Um, it's one of the largest tractor manufacturers in the world. Um, and, you know, saying that, I don't think um, size is everything when it comes to tractors, by all accounts here. Um, and the reason I say that, uh, one forum user I came across pointed out, I was speaking about Belarusian tractors. I was on a strange place of the website here. Um, if you don't expect too much, a handy with spanners and don't need anything electrical to ever work, then Belarusian tractors will do a job. Me, I'd rather nail my testicles to a vegan's clogs. So it just goes to show the caliber of their output as an exporter. Um, Malcolm, I'm just a little um, bit worried about you browsing through tractor websites, though. They, you know, there was that conservative MP who got in a lot of trouble for doing that. Just be careful. Of course, of course. Yeah, you never know where you might end up. Um, but no, as I say, real country contradictions. Um, it, it's got a nickname as the lungs of Europe. So, so you know, Europe's last dictatorship, but also the lungs of Europe. Um, this is due to the fact that the country's um, totally covered by this, this, what was once an enormous primeval forest that went across the whole of Europe. 
um, and a lot of it still remains. Um, but that said, no amount of forest, I think, is, is ever going to prevent, you know, strontium making its way into your packed lunch, perhaps. <laughs> This is, of course, um, referring to the, the fallout of the Chernobyl disaster, um, and apparently up to 70% of the fallout from, from Chernobyl um, fell in Belarus um, due to prevailing winds. Um, so they really, really were hit hard by that. Um, it's a nation of very keen drinkers, very keen drinkers. I think it's actually got um, one of the world's highest um, you know, consumptions of alcohol per capita. Um, and yet drinking in public in Belarus is entirely illegal, obviously not in bars, I mean, out and about, it's, it's completely legal, um, as are illegal substances, they can land you hefty, hefty jail sentences, um, as can um, cursing in public, um, perhaps not a jail sentence, but, um, but you can get a hefty fine on the back of that. Um, and yet, despite all of this, apparently, um, people will say that Belarusians are apparently very good humoured, they're a friendly, kind folk, um, and yet it's the only country country in Europe that is still using capital punishment, um, which is pretty tragic, really, when you think about it. Um, and then when you dig a bit deeper and find out their method of execution, it's tragic more still. Um, so this is a gun to the head. It's not even a firing squad. It's quite literally a gun to the head. It's got the second highest divorce rate in the world, um, just over 50%, which is actually quite a, sh- a shocking figure. Um, this is according to divorcemag.com, the first and still the best resource for separated and divorced individuals. Um, but I digress. Um, to, to, to kind of summarise, as I said, a, a, a land of contradictions in many ways. Well, thanks for that, Malcolm. Um, and now it seems like a good time for us to, to hear from our guest from Belarus, who now lives in the UK. We're going to call her Vola, which is not her real name, but probably quite obvious why she's requested to, to remain anonymous. So, Volha, thanks very much for taking part in this, this episode. Now, Malcolm and I know really very little at all about Belarus other than what we've been sort of researching in the past couple of weeks. So you you grew up in Belarus, you, you lived there for most of your life. And uh, can you give us a kind of a feel for what the actual country's like? Oh, uh, okay, sure. I, I'll do that with all my pleasure because, well, right, um, I was I was born in Belarus and uh, it's really a part of my personality. I um, Even I, if I lived in different countries, after I left there 16 years ago, I still feel like a very strong connection to my home country. Uh, so if I were to describe Belarus to you, like to as a tourist, like, right, who want to visit some place. Uh, so uh, as for the nature, it's, um, it's very, you know, it's very um, uh, quiet. So uh, in um in Belarus, you can find neither mountains or sea, so the landscape is quite of quite plain, oh, like right. in terms of the nature. But you know, there are lots of uh, lakes and rivers and swamps, actually. <laughs> so again, one of the things that Belarus is famous for. Uh, so the most like beautiful uh, places of interest, like from. Nature-wise, like they, they would be like similar to Lake District, but without mountains, <laughs> something like that. Uh, well, but uh, if you are very much into the Soviet-style architecture and uh, urban um, planning, so you definitely should visit the capital of Belarus, uh, uh, Minsk city. Uh, so many people say that visiting Minsk is like 
you know, uh, traveling by time machine because, well, it, it's, delivers you a little bit to the past uh, because Minsk was not so uh, reconstructed after the Soviet times. And, uh, well, it was uh, built, um, uh, it was built mostly after the World War and uh, Soviet architects uh, really tried their hardest to make it, you know, they, they wanted Minsk to be like the, but a perfect city how they imagined it uh, it should be back in in the 40s and 50s uh, so if you just uh, go to the city center and visit the main avenue so it will still preserve this a lot of this uh, stalin uh, style architecture uh, there are lots of places which were which were built at that time, and they and they they are very you know they are very cute and cozy because compared to like a more modern um, buildings and areas, they still you know preserve this this feeling of um, uh, of coziness. And so, did you did you actually grow up in in Minsk? Then? I grew up in a small city, not far from Minsk, but in Minsk, my happiest years happened. So I, I went right. to the university there and I, I really love this city. But for me, if I, if I were to choose now, I would like go and live there. <laughs> but wow. uh, uh, as soon as uh, like some mentally stable person starts to rule the country... <laughs> So if we were to if we were all in Minsk now and we were all to go out for lunch together what what sort of things would you recommend that we try uh, if uh, speaking about Belarusian cuisine it's um uh, it's a peasant cuisine. I believe that uh, you, you can find similar dishes in Scottish cuisine as well. So it's based around a pig and potatoes <laughs> I would say so uh, a lot of meat, a lot of uh, potatoes, so different mixtures of that. That would that works. What makes the Belarusian cuisine? However, well, in in the city you can find whatever, like uh, anything to your liking. So it's it's quite uh, modern and it's quite uh, diverse in in this regard. And again, uh, when I'm Talking it is, I refer to the times uh, like a couple of years ago when the situation was more or less quiet in the uh, in um, in Belarus because a lot of you know there were there were a lot of changes uh, after that. Now, so and another thing that all the all the Belarus not only means it's super clean, so it's you know you, you can hardly find any you know papers on the ground anything like that so people are very crazy about that mm -hmm. so that's really what uh, what a lot of tourists first realize when they come to the city you, you mentioned well how that you you kind of miss minsk i mean what what sort of things do you most miss about Belarus in general? Um, you know, in general, at the moment, I I miss the entire Belarus, I would say, because when I think about it, I'm in, I'm in London at the moment, so traveling there with uh, with whole of my family seems quite risky to me because the situation in the region is very unstable. You don't know what to expect any moment, and you if you try to plan ahead for a couple of months, it seems impossible. Uh, well, in uh, there, I have. Uh, 
like a, um, uh, a country house where my mother lives. And it's a wonderful village that I really, really miss. That That's my place of power. <laughs> so it's it's not very far from the place where my grandparents uh, were, were born and where they lived very complicated life, like with all those tragedies of, uh, of the 20th century. So you, it's kind of a, you know, place of history, um, for me and um it's great to be there and to you know to touch it sometimes to uh, to energize myself uh and of course the people my friends who share the same values this, who share the same uh, hopes and aspirations for for the whole belarusian country so when we want just to sit together and just discuss how how they feel what's you know their hopes are how how they live in the situation what's what what is there so i really miss that um a lot Volha, you t- you touched briefly on the sort of political situation and, and specifically on on the president as well and something that fraser and i were really keen to find out is obviously we we get we get our information about belarus through through all these western news outlets and 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 from those we we get the idea that lukashenko is this you know he cuts quite a comical sort of figure in a way um but our understanding is that in belarus on the ground it's not just the case that this is a comical figure that that that, that the situation is pretty dire and and here's a man that claims in his last election that he got something like 90% of the vote. I mean, what do you guys make of the current situation um, and, and specifically the president himself? No, well, right. Well, it may look like comic figure, but for the whole country, it's a real tragedy. Uh, well, uh, Lukashenko, well, it's an interesting figure. And uh, for all the historic uh, historians, it would be like interesting to dig into the reasons how he came to power and how he survived for so many years because, well, he should know the recipe very well. <laughs> How being like an absolutely like inexperienced person in politics and he then established a, a, one of the most solid dictatorship in the region. Uh, so uh, he is the reflection of how confused people were after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s. So lots of people uh, lost their savings, lost their jobs. They had no idea what the future is about. They interfaced this freedom, but uh, it came after after that. But they didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, and there comes Lukashenko, you know, with this aggressive style. And people were angry, so they were really responsive to, to this kind of uh, style. And he could find the words how to make people believe that he really can, can save them and return everything good that was destroyed with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, at the first election, as I remember it, in the 90s, and, uh, well, I was little that that time, but I remember that very, very well, because, you know, in every family there were so many talks, what's going on, uh, who are the candidates, uh, what to choose. This was like the first election for the people, a real election when they could really say some word. Uh, And I remember 
remember, yeah, that uh, at first uh, his support was really high. Uh, but again, uh, there was very, very clear border between generations. I remember that older generation really supported him tremendously. And my grandmother, uh, for example, loved him so much. But all the younger people, they were just, you know, uh, really confused with this Personally, so what is he talking about? So we're really, you know, afraid that uh, he, he's not the best representative for the for the country. Uh, but uh, well, as soon as he came to power, from the very first years, he started to. Um, eliminates all the elements uh, of de democracy existing at the moment, and uh, by now there, I, I can. Well, it's it's absolutely clear to everyone that there are no elections. They are they are all brutally falsified. There is like procedure of elections, but really nobody cares to count the votes. Uh, so they just throw the bulletins away and uh, just say the the number that he likes, and that's it. That's how it works. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, and it, it it does it didn't happen only at the last election. It happened all the time over the last uh, twenty eight years, uh, as he's in power. Uh, well, um, the problem is that people uh, who were actively protesting against the situation they in the past they were kind of a few. So there were uh, always a bunch of enthusiasts, even, you know, if this would be like tens of thousands of pe people who would come to protest, they would never like change anything. And this is only in like in the largest city in the capital. But in the 2020, somehow, I don't know, a lot of factors coincided at one particular moment. And uh, this falsification somehow were clear and evident to like the entire nation. And uh, it covered, you know, every minor city in, in Belarus uh, where people went out to pr protest against that. So uh, the situation is changing and uh, it's it's obvious for the people that he's like not the right person uh, for, for the country and we would like to live in, you know, um, in, in, in a system where people have their vote, uh, have their rights, where people are respected, but unfortunately that is not the case at the moment. So the one who has the arms wins and he can, uh, uh, you know, do whatever, whatever, whatever he wants at the moment. Do, do you get a sense, if I can ask, that the, the elections of 2020 might be the beginning of the end, despite the situation sounding pretty grave at the moment. And as you said, a, a real tragedy. Do you get a sense that this kind of collective recognition of the, the sort of falsification around his election and everything else going on, that actually he's he, he's kind of signed his death warrant in a sense? You know, it's... Uh... 
we, we really had our hopes for that uh, at the 2020 because it was so clear that his uh, support is is uh, is so low, and even based on the um, uh, like the sources that I do respect uh, who run uh, like social. Uh, studies of the situation and of the opinions of the people, they say that his support is no more than like 25% of the people, which is insanely low for any kind of a uh, system, right? Uh, However, uh, I can say that these events of 2020, they started uh, definitely, they started very important changes in the entire region, However, (laughs) it's very soon to tell that this is the beginning of his end. So something is going to change. And, uh, well, if you look back uh, in in this year and a half, you can see uh, so many things that happened that no one really predicted. And this is some something absolutely new that we are living in. We, we we never had this experience. We never had like a real war going on just uh, uh, in the neighboring country when when one one neighbor is attacking the other from the territory of our country. This is so new to us. We really. You know, it, it's it's very hard to predict uh, what, what's going to be next. I believe that, um, uh, well, these guys are not getting any younger. That's for sure. Neither Lukashenko nor, nor Putin, I think they are kind of, of the same age, uh, of the same generation. And, uh, well, they have a lot, a lot in common. And, of course, they are moving towards like uh, the the years when they are not uh, so strong as as they are now however it's it's too soon to tell whether it's going to sustain for like a couple of years or 10 year or even you know who knows maybe this is all going closer and closer to the North Korea situation. When yeah, Volker, is there a sense of a succession plan? You know, if, if he were to, to die in his sleep tonight, would there be, is there somebody, as far as you're aware, waiting in the wings to take over, you know, part of his, his dynasty? Um, no, I do not see any successor to Lukashenko at all. At the moment, it... Uh, uh, there is no such a figure. Uh, I mean, it's not a public figure. So he's so much afraid and scared to, you know, to to, um, to not lose his power, but even uh, limit his power or even think about it. He's 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 you know so obsessed with this idea that I think that. He's he's afraid even to think what what's going to to happen next. Although he actually promised that this was the last election uh, where where he participated, and uh, there were some changes, like officially to the constitution, which means that there will be some other organs ruling the country. But well, I'm sure that this is kind of a trick for him to to stay in power for longer. So, and uh, there are no any signs that he's preparing someone to be his successor. It's um, even now, no sign at all, unfortunately. 
the only comfort we could maybe bring from all of this is that if you look at the you know 20th century history the history of dictators through the 20th century things never work out well for them. I mean, it it might be good in their minds for a short period of time, but it never ends well for dictators. And so I suppose in that sense, we're maybe seeing that playing out with with Belarus, with Russia. Uh, I suppose one one can only hope, but yeah. Uh, That's true. That's absolutely true. Uh, And for Belarus, I agree that uh, it would be very hard to, for a new dictator to come uh, to come over and uh, take take the power because well people do not uh, honestly and uh, support what what they have they are really waiting for this moment that would trigger uh, again uh, all this situation where they just you know come out and tell that they are against of the system. Paula, just one last question to to put to you. I wonder if you could could you sum up your your wishes for well what's a way of putting it the wishes that you have for your country in the future what do you hope for the future of belarus uh, well my my hopes and wishes is for for belarus to have this uh, another window of opportunity to become a free democratic country of course uh, because, uh, well, we, we, we had it like 30 years ago after the uh, uh, Soviet Union and before Lukashenko, they were just maybe four or five years, no more than that. Uh, and uh, even these years were kind of sufficient to uh, for the Belarus as a nation to accumulate a little bit of, uh, of energy, you know, and after these years of dictatorship, we, uh, we are looking forward to this uh, next window of opportunity because the civil society is ready. So we could see that in 2020. So there are people who uh, are wants to be respected, to have their dignity, who has their feeling of responsibility, and they are, you know, ready to work, to work hard, to establish this, uh, to build this new country. So we we can see that, and this idea really inspires us and makes us believe that this um, this all sacrifices and people who are sitting in prison at the moment, uh, this is you know mean something and uh, they this will be an inspiration for the for the future for us to build the country uh, on the different grounds so i that that's my dream so that belarus is an open and democratic and respectful to all its neighbors and uh, you know builds relationships based on respect to all of them without um, threatens or fears or you know something like that what's what's happening at the moment Vola thank you so much it's been really interesting great to to have you on this this first episode thanks to you guys that was great great to hear from Vola so articulate and thoughtful and now to close the chapter on Lukashenko let's hear from another Belarusian the man himself so that was Lukashenko a couple of years ago. He was ranting about the threat to Belarus from NATO and Ukraine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what we can do now is, is let, let him really speak 
for himself in his own words. So these are just a few things that Lukashenko has said over the years, obviously translated into English. Mm-hmm. German order evolved over the centuries and attained its peak under Hitler. This corresponds with our understanding of a presidential republic and the role of a president in it. Aspirational, eh? <laughs> Dear me. Um, talking of Germany, you also mocked the German foreign minister, Guido Vestervel, for being gay. He's mocked female opponents in Belarus, saying that women can't handle pressure and should concentrate on looking after their children and making tasty cutlets. <laughs> so, he's a, so he's a Nazi sympathiser. He's homophobic. He's sexist. And you won't be surprised, Malcolm, to hear he's anti-Semitic too. Mm. In October 2007, he was discussing on a live broadcast on state radio the city of Babarusk. And apologies again if I've completely mispronounced that. He stated, this is a Jewish city and the Jews are not concerned for the place they live in. They have turned Babarusk into a pigsty. And in July 2012, he said... The Jews managed to force the world to remember the Holocaust. The entire world grovels before them and gives in to them. And on that note, Malcolm, I'm going to pass over to you because I know that you've got something to say about the monster cockroach. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, I, I was just I was interested in in this nickname and 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 didn't question it at first because I assumed it was just to do with the with the looks with the mustache or something um but no did a little bit of digging and it transpires that um the the opposition leader actually the the, the husband of the op- opposition leader who Vola mentioned earlier um he inspired a bit of a, a a bit of a movement um as i understand it um that became known as the the, the slipper protest um and this basically sees uh, belarusians who are uh, against lukashenko and his regime um, come out physically wielding slippers um, as a, a kind of show of display or display against, you know, against Lukashenko as, as if they can, you know, crush him with a slipper as, as, uh-huh. as we do a, a cockroach. Um, but but I did a bit more digging thinking, well, there's, there's got to be a reason why a cockroach in particular. And it transpires that this comes from a Russian nursery rhyme. As you mentioned, Fraser, um, this is the, the the giant cockroach. The name of the the rhyme, um, and in the rhyme, I'll just quote from 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 parts of it. Um, a happy uh, sort of very bucolic animal kingdom is broken by the appearance of a terrible giant, the red-haired, big-whiskered cockroach, and the cockroach proceeds to bully and harass far bigger animals, demanding they surrender their cubs so that he can eat them for dinner. The dictatorship of the cockroach reduces the animals to a sobbing, quivering, pathetic bunch. Wolves devour each other out of fear. An elephant shivers so much that she stumbles and sits on a hedgehog. A hippo calls calls on the bulls and the rhinos to spear the enemy with their horns, and they offer two frogs and a pine cone as a reward. The bulls and the rhinos say they'd be happy to oblige, but the horns are not cheap these days. And so the cockroach's rule remains unchallenged until a laughing kangaroo points out that the cockroach is in fact no giant, but merely a cockroach. The hippos tell the insolent marsupial to shut up. You'll make things worse for us. But then a sparrow comes along and swallows the bug, whiskers and all, and the animals rejoice. How's that for a for a modern day allegory of of Belarus and a nice future? Brilliant, isn't it? 
Really That's such is. a good story. It's, it's a bit surreal as well, the, the it, mixture of the animals. It is. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a strange one. But I mean, kangaroo popping in. Well, absolutely. <laughs> Given that this is allegedly a classic nursery rhyme, a classic Russian nursery rhyme that, that pre- I don't actually know when it was written. I mean, it, it's just so, it's just a mirror image. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Scary. Uh, it's really, really, really interesting. Uh, well, I think. We've managed to pretty much nail nail the man. He's he's, he's not very nice, is he? I think he's <laughs> Lukashenko. I think that's so. He is he is a bit of a cockroach. It doesn't sound. <laughs> Before we head off, Malcolm, any, any other news from the kind of the world of glorious leaders? Yeah, there a couple sort of tidbits that I've, I've come come across uh, in recent days and weeks. Um, I noticed that recently um, North Korea announced its first cases of of COVID-19, which has to be absolute nonsense. Um, I, I shudder to think how rife COVID-19 has been in, in North Korea. Although that said, when you think about it, their borders are pretty tightly controlled. Um, the other one that I came across, which was quite interesting, was a piece in one of the newspapers um, talking about um, Emmanuel Macron's 24-year age gap with his wife. And specifically, how does that compare with other world leaders? Um, so, yeah, had, a, had, a, had an interesting look here. And basically, the consensus is that world leaders choose um, far younger spouses. Certainly when it comes to male world leaders, it's, it's, it's generally younger wives that they, that they have. Um, Macron sort of bucks the trend there a little bit, you know, going for an older, older female. Um, the only other one on the list there was um, obviously talking about past leaders now, um, Angela Merkel. Uh, she's got a, an older husband. Um, but the one that really jumped out was President Jacob Zuma, um, the fourth president of South Africa, whose wife is 38 years younger than him. Um, and he also has many wives. He practices polygamy as is uh, traditional in Zulu culture. And then the very last one there, just following on from that one, um, Ibn Saud, the former uh, king of Saudi Arabia and the founder of Saudi. Um, he had many wives, many concubines, um, and many of these marriages were actually contracted in order to cement alliances with with other clans. But in my mind, the most amazing fact is that this man fathered almost 100 children. So <laughs> go figure. <laughs> uh, great. Now, just get, I think a couple of more things to hear uh, Big shout out to Andrew Foy, Premier of the British Virgin Islands, who's been thrown out of power there after being arrested in the US on really serious drug smuggling and money laundering charges after <laughs> decades of uh, allegations of corruption on his part. What a shiny example, eh? Well, what a wonderful person. <laughs> um, and just thought we should end, actually, by going back to the, the same neck of the woods that we started. But uh, just a quick mention of Vladimir Putin, who, you know, for all his brutality and unpleasantness, has been extraordinarily shrewd in his strategic rise from a sort of St. Petersburg tenement to this, you know, being one of the world's most powerful men. Um, But, of course, one of the explanations for his invasion of Ukraine, the the key motivator on his part, was to deter NATO from sort of encroaching further upon uh, Russian territory, getting any closer. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, whether it's because he's just lost grip of reality, uh, he's going a bit insane or whatever, or he's just lost his touch, he's completely cocked this up. I mean, he's got it all wrong because now Finland and Sweden are applying to join NATO. 
So soon you'll be able to drive from the Finnish border once it's part of NATO. It's only four hours to get get there to from there to St. Petersburg, you know, where, where he comes from. So didn't really go to plan, did it's, it? Uh, it's somewhat backfired, hasn't it? <laughs> Just somewhat. With obviously huge consequences for Ukraine, mm. um, and it just reminded me uh, uh, on a parting note of a book called "Extraordinarily Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds" by a guy called Charles Mackay. I don't know if you've heard of that. No. Uh-huh. Well, here's a quote from it: "Nations, like individuals, have their whims and peculiarities, their seasons of excitement and recklessness when they care not what they do." We see one nation seized with a fierce desire of military glory, another crazed upon a religious scruple, and neither of them recovering its senses until it has shed rivers of blood. Do you want to take a guess as to when that book was written? (laughs) Well, you could certainly imagine not not that long ago, but I'm guessing you're going to tell me the opposite. It was written in 1841. Oh, blimey. (laughs) Thus it ever was. Clues are change. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Our glorious leaders. Uh, uh.